everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Jan Hugenroth, who is the founder and CEO of Next Matter. Next Matter is a real-time platform used to automate and track cross-team processes. Prior to founding Next Matter, Jan was with McKinsey and Company, where he advised clients across several industries. Welcome, Jan. Hi, Anita. Thank you for having me here. Excellent. All right. So, Jan, my first question is, as a consultant, you're used to advising and being arm's length in terms of execution. How did you decide to take the leap from that to becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I think it's actually an interesting switch for many people. The profession of consulting is inherently entrepreneurial in many, many ways. Just not in the way where you see at the end, somebody creates a slide deck and they let you implement it yourself. That's the part where we always get, and I still say we, because there's probably a little consultant still in me, where we still get um, a lot of criticism. But there's a lot of entrepreneurship in there. There's entrepreneurship in finding projects. There's entrepreneurship in building your team, even though the larger company might have recruited the team. It's actually a marketplace of finding consultants to work with. Every project is like a small startup in a way. You have an environment that you can set up. You have tools to go back to. You have support from all sides. But in the end, convincing a new client, going through the whole journey of consulting them, making them successful. And then in the end, looking at all of this and seeing that you created actually something new out of nothing and a bit of maybe pen and paper. That is entrepreneurial, I think. Now, the part that is difficult for, I think, ex-consultants in general is switching from more an academic and brain-driven, fully thoughtful process to an execution-heavy process. Execution-heavy meaning you will never have complete information. You won't be able to create that large spreadsheet with all the optimizations over three years. You won't have a research um, analyst next to you that will help you figure it out. You'll just need to take a decision, a leap of faith, and go with it. So that one was really the one that when switching from consulting to entrepreneurship was for me the most daunting. And how did you overcome that? Did you read books? Did you find mentors? What was your way to get up to speed on areas which were new for you? So I started with a book and a podcast, actually, video podcast. It was one of the first Apple University podcasts by Y Combinator, Startup School 101. It's now a few years old. It's still a very good read if you read up on it or um, actually a few uh, videos to watch besides Netflix. Getting immersed in the thinking of what it takes to build a startup, to find your idea, to go through the process of building it and then making it successful, that helped me a lot to prepare for it. And the second one is reading a few books. Absolutely, there was something. But the third one, and I think I've grown to even more appreciate it today, is ask people who've been there and done that and work closely with them, which is not only investors, but it's also people who've started the business literally out of consulting a few years before. I have a few people close um, who are actually angel investors right now who've done this journey a few years before I started. So you can really go and talk through the whole process while you go um, and build your company. Excellent. Mentoring is key to developing your skill set as an entrepreneur. Okay, well, let's talk about Next Matter. So when I go to your website, it says Next Matter helps you digitize your business your way. And the word to me, digitize your business, 
means so many things to so many people. So I'm curious if you can elaborate a little bit more about what Next Matter does and perhaps give a few use cases that really show what Next Matter's value yes. is. So first of all, I think you summarized what we do very well already to start with. In the end, digitizing your business is indeed a uh, broad field, but it is what we're doing in the end. The question is, how do you get there? If you look at a company, typically it's a combination of people, teams, systems, suppliers, customers, some investors. If you look at it as a software engineer, as a large system of elements. Now, these elements by themselves do a lot of work, ideally for the greater good of the company. And you define a goal and then ideally they reach it. The biggest challenge with running a company with all these kinds of components is coordinating it. If you look at where people spend time and money and a lot of energy, focus and sleepless nights, it's coordinating people. It's like 50 to 60% of company resources is spent on just the coordination part. Yeah. So what we do is we automate that coordination part for you. We'll let you define the processes that go through people, teams, systems, all the way to suppliers and customers end to end. And that's very specific use cases for that. Every time you onboard a new customer, typically you have Salesforce, Zendesell, HubSpot, some system that covers your customers. But the moment when you hand over from sales to customer success and customer success then takes the whole journey of onboarding the customer, that happens manually in Slack, spreadsheets, emails. So in this kind of process, we would sit down, show you the software, which is like a Lego toolkit for that process and help you build step-by-step step the process. For example, you have to first write a contract, then the legal department has to review it, then it will be sent to the customer for a signature. If all is fine, you continue. If not, you go for a review. Very simple workflow automation. The trick is doing this not only for some task list in a very simplistic way like some, some task managers or project managers do, but do it in a very automated and advanced way where every single piece of your organization is involved and handovers work flawlessly. I see. Uh, I'm sure when you first talk about it, people will say, oh, well, there's so many project management tools. There's Trello, there's Asana, there's Aha, there's Monday. How do you convince your prospects and customers on what this does? The beauty is we typically don't have to convince our customers of the problem they have. When we talk to them about the problem they might have, we get a yes. When we show them the solution, they say, I don't have that yet, although they have Asana, Slack, an ERP system, a CRM system. Now, the question is, what do they see there? And the way I like to describe that is, on the left-hand side, if you look at a spectrum, on the left-hand side, you've got very, it's probably, um, depending on who's listening to this now, don't, don't overreact on this, simplistic solutions. Those are task managers, spreadsheets, any, I would almost say, digital form of pen and paper which is very helpful. It's very helpful mm -hmm. to cover those tasks, those projects in boards and be very flexible to work with it. What doesn't work with that is reliable, repetitive execution at scale. Then you've got the other side of the spectrum. That's ERP systems, your very own in-house solution, CRM systems. For all of these, I think all of us have been through projects of extending them, customizing them. Everybody has a Salesforce, SAP, Oracle developer in-house, sometimes hundreds of people spending money on consultants and typically not getting the full value 
outside of the core functionality which these systems cover well, getting the full value for all the operational processes around. So those are really, really hard to adjust. If you had all the money and time and developer power in the world, even then I would doubt that you really get to 100% digitized operating system for your business. So in between, there's a, there's a white spot. There's a lot missing. And I've seen that in my consulting years all over, as well as in SME and the corporate in between those steps. And that was frustrating. So we built the solution that is in between, that actually lets you graduate from a simple board in Asana, Trello, Monday to something that is much more repetitive, automated, with proper handovers, proper quality controls, without having to spend the time the years typically for customizing your ERP system. Yeah, I, I think this is something again that I saw on your homepage around no coding required and customization. I think everyone has felt the pain of coding and customization of the ERP systems, but how much can actually be done without coding? Because every company is different, every industry and process is different. Is this really realistic? Is that what I'm asking? I think you actually just brought the right argument. Every company, every process, every person, every team, every goal you want to reach is in the end different. There are a few businesses that are very repetitive. So we can talk about some craftsmen business. We can talk about some uh, simple saloons or like bars. They're outside in, you would say, even those are the same. They should have the same system. If you ask the owner, if you ask the team there, they're different. They have a different layout. They have different tables. They have all kinds of different things. In larger companies, this is much more the case. And that is precisely why you will need these kinds of no-code solutions. And let me take you through why. So if you look at the global power of engineering, even if we educate everyone to be an engineer, which by the way, by probably public knowledge, we shouldn't educate everyone to be an engineer and probably couldn't educate everyone to be an engineer. We need actually everyone to be an engineer to build those unique solutions for their own business. Now, the next best solution is everybody hires an engineering team. I don't have to talk about how hard this is these days. Let's wait for 10 or 20 years when we go to actually challenging problems, which are much more than just building some beautiful front ends and a bit of database structure in the back end. So knowing that this is a the inherent shortage in the market, you need to solve this in a different way. And to me personally, and I think to many people developing no-code uh, solutions these days, this is the solution. Because we have a population, a working population, that is getting so much more digital as a broad word or actually able to work with all kinds of digital solutions that they will be able to pick this up over the next few years. And already now we've got early users who work very well with that. So the example you gave, just to finish it off with that, Yes, no-code solutions are awesome for prototyping. There are whole agencies built on um, no-code solutions these days. And they sometimes companies go all the way to Series A with this. And it works well. And it actually, if you look at it closer for actual companies that I've seen in the consulting years, many, many companies run on no-code solutions these days. Excel is everywhere. Or Google <laughs> Sheets for uh, more uh, smaller companies. That is a no-code solution in the end. It's a no-code solution for building all kinds of advanced models. It's actually used for all kinds of even process tracking. So if you look at the trend over the next 10, 20 years, and we're in this not for, for the next two years, 
there's a massive underlying trend um, and the need for these kinds of solutions. And now you can look at which solutions you need. And some of them are further ahead of the curve. Website building has been around for a long time. Spreadsheets have been along, around for a long time. So now we get new kinds of solutions for these problems. But in the space of running a proper organization and business on it, we haven't seen proper solutions come out. And um, that's why we're building this. And are the companies that you're pitching this to, are they seeing the value and, and do they have the maturity for it? What is their reaction when you talk about no-code solutions? So the first reaction is, I haven't seen something like this before. Typically, we, we make a demo. It takes me like five to 10 minutes by now if I go through everything. But typically, the first reaction is, wow, I haven't seen this before. How can I use this for myself? And then you've got... And we can talk about this in a lot of detail, even in a separate conversation. Then you've got that whole process from going, okay, wow, this is a problem I've got. This is a solution that will fix my problem. How do I now get to implementing it? Which is frankly what we're working on right now to make even easier. But the customers we're working with closely right now, and we've been working with over the last two years, they are getting value from it. They're getting value in different use cases where they used to, I don't know, chat on Slack and move this whole process over. Where they used to have hundreds of tickets in Asana, nobody tracked them, everybody did what they wanted, and in the end, half of the goals got reached. They moved this over to Next Matter, and suddenly you've got the transparency over all of it. It's automatically coordinated. Nobody needs to move tickets, and actually people know what they need to do when and um, get to the goal that they want to achieve. So they are getting value from this today, and they see the value for it. Now, for this to reach more than the early adopters, like every product, this will take a bit of time, um, which we're investing. Excellent. Now, you started this company when the pandemic was not there. And now you're in the middle of it where everyone was saying the way we work has fundamentally changed. So talk to me about trends that you're seeing, maybe just in talking to the prospects and customers you currently have. So the times we're in are really reasons right now. And I think everybody experiences in their day to day seems like a to me at least, like a very, very fast acceleration of what's been there before. And I think that's what we're seeing in, if we look at results of um, the SaaS companies over the last few months, if you look at growth for many solutions that have been around for uh, a few years, if you look at adoption rates for digital products, if you look at adoption rates in developing countries just for digital connection, it's growing. So there's no question. To me, this is a huge acceleration, which in the end, just enforced and accelerated a trend that was underlying already for a few years. And one of the reasons, probably the reason for us to build this company. And again, I'd like to go back to the fundamental. This, is a, this happens now for a few months and then change. What is the thing that happens right now, probably happened over the last five to 10 years and will happen over the next 50 to 100 years? That's the interesting question. If you, if you think about it critically for some time, what you will know that organizations will change. You could have predicted this a few years ago. You also will know that organizations will be almost fully digital in one way or another, which doesn't mean there's no people, but it means they like a proper system. Now, what does that system look like? And what is really the organization of the future? We don't know, but we know that these two things are true. And the third thing we know is within those organizations, they always will be organized to reach a common goal with, as I said, different elements which are interconnected and somehow do their work. So what we're seeing there, and this is where Next Meta comes in, and this is where the broader trend fits, um, fits to what we're doing. 
these individual elements, be it systems, teams, or people, to be work, working together and building that system today for companies today to build the organization of the future they want to be in 20 years is the first step to get there. Just capture the system and then allow everyone in that system to do their best work, which is now what we see big companies doing. Siemens saying, we are realizing that we will always be remote. So therefore, we need to change our culture from a presence culture to a empowerment, a culture of doing the that you're that you're hired for right not receiving instructions but going after goals um, going after objectives not looking at the time spent but at the work result and if siemens is realizing this and other companies are realizing this and smaller companies startups have been working like this for for years in 10 years a lot more people will realize this and then you need the right system for that so what is the organization of the future i frankly don't know but what i know is we will have those underlying trends that will lead to an organization of the future that is much more dispersed, much more interconnected, requires much more individual responsibility, and at the same time, much more coordination in between. So that underlying trend is there. I don't know if you, if you want to go to the extremes. Is it possible to have an organization of one person running a multinational to the extreme, potentially? Um, why not? Hmm. If you can code and build a system today, can operate by itself and create a lot of value. Why can you not build an organization like that that automatically coordinates different people, teams, suppliers, customers, and systems towards that goal? That's obviously the more advanced view. And then there's all kinds of nuances in between. But if you think back from that, you'll get why what we're doing today might matter. Hmm, interesting. And when you go to your prospects and customers, how do you position Next Matter amongst everything else that they have? So typically, one of the first questions I ask is, what is your tech stack? And typically, the answer is, this is our technologies and software engineering. That's not what I'm asking. What is your operational stack? And this is, I think, a question a lot of businesses have not thought critically about. Mm. It's by chance, you get all kinds of tools that do some things, and then you've got some people, and somehow you get it together. So the way I like to talk about it is, if you've got all those tools and systems, how do you connect them? What is the end-to-end -end logic in which you get your things done? The typical next answer is I've got Asana, Trello, or whatever, which is great for task management, project management, and so on, and you can do small automations between. But even then, if you look at your business, what do you have as a tech stack? You've got all kinds of task managers, project managers, you have ERP and CRM systems, you have a couple of uh, verticals as in between. Typically, you've covered... 10, 20, sometimes 30% of the work that you need to cover. If you're really great, um, you've done all kinds of automations of work with RPA or AI, maybe you get to 40%, 50% for really high-driven technology companies. The other 50 to 80% is manual. And that manual mess, and it's literally mess, I think everybody can relate to that. Typically, any company you open the lid up on, you'll see, you don't tell them you've got a mess, but typically people know that. So uh, then the question is, what is the solution for that? So that's where we come in to um, digitize those 50 to 80% of a, of a business. Just take them from manual to digital and then iterate on getting You're right in that there's a lot of administrative and manual processes in most companies. My question is, that's on one side. On the other side, I also hear a lot of companies that are trying to reduce their tech stack. They feel we have too many tools in the tech stack and they want to reduce the number of vendors and number of tools that they have to deal with. So 
after you've got them nodding your head on the problem, but it is a vague problem because no one has quantified all the stuff that people do that is not captured, right? How do you get companies to pay for a solution like that? You go one by one. Classical uh, startup and growth roadmap, figure out the few use cases that we can be really valuable for. So typically in the first conversation, we come with examples. Um, we can show in an e-commerce company of 100 to 500 people, even up to 1,000 people, you typically have a breaking point at 100, 150 people where Asana spreadsheets and so on just don't work for some of those processes. I can tell you those processes right now, supplier onboarding, supplier returns, new content creation, new product creation, and there's a list. We are actually in the exercise of mapping that out and have answers for the use cases we serve very well today. And you can have the same conversation about a media company and a manufacturing company, a VC. Um, we're working uh, right now also to understand what is what is happening in that world, right? And even if you have a small VC team of 5, 10, 20 people, you've got a lot of manual processes that ideally could work in a digital way. And even looking further in portfolio companies, typically if you see the breaking point, they see when this is happening. And that's when we show a few use cases, implement the first one, show how the toolkit works, and that way, the team can actually go off and build new use cases, which we see happening uh, all over the place, which is really nice. So that brings me to another question um, that most startups face, which is a question of focus, especially when you, when you think about something like what Next Matter does. Really, the world is your oyster in terms of the number of manual processes that you could start attacking as your first few use cases right? How did you decide on what to focus on? Do you go vertical? Do you go horizontal? If you go horizontal, which processes do you pick? How did you decide that? This is so important to get right. And the honest answer is, I think, and many people listening to this can relate, you never fully, fully get there. You need to push yourself for that focus. So what did we do in this case? We did not want to focus on one element first, just because this is a Huge opportunity, huge market, problem is there. You get nodding heads wherever you go. So, and you need to build a toolkit, uh, a broadly applicable solution that covers a lot of use cases. And uh, I said that to a colleague yesterday, Zas is the new shampoo, right? Uh, if you build a new shampoo, then figure out what the shampoos are, see which age group you want to sell to or which type of preferences. It's a well-known market. There are Zas markets that right. are well-known. You figure out the use case, you f figure out your spot, you go after it. We're not in the marketing SaaS game, we're in the building SaaS game. So for the building SaaS game, I think you have to do something different. You actually have to let chaos reign a bit, go mm. through different use cases. So what we did is have worked with a number of very early adopters over the last two years, very closely, every week, showing them how they can digitize the process, helping them to work with their teams. We try to make people use our product while learning a lot from it. And we're just now at the point where we're saying, okay, we've got a product that fits to the problem, to the need in the market, that when we show it to customers, they get it and they want it. Now the question is, and this is the second market fit, right? It's go-to-market fit. Now the second question is which segment we can go after fastest. The beauty of doing the broad approach first is we've got quite a few use cases. So yeah. um, the discussions we're having right now out of those use cases, if we repeatable want to go after e-commerce companies with supplier onboarding supplier return processes, 
how, if you look at the whole funnel, how do you optimize each stage for that? But that's a known segment now. And there's a few other known segments that we have as well. I get a lot of advice and focus on use case, use case, use case. We specifically didn't do that. We are only doing that mm. now for the go-to-market fit because I think it's much more valuable to see this pattern recognition across a few use cases, the few features that really matter. And in terms of focus, focus in startups is important, as I said, but the part that is important is not to have focus for focus sake. The question is only which question do you want to answer? So the question we needed to answer in the last two years was what to build. And for what to build, the optimization is not focusing on one use case because then you only serve that one use case, you never get to the toolkit. Now for selling fast, that is a use case question. Hmm, interesting. So when you were looking at funding, what was important to your investors that you were pitching to? Were they looking for... I'm going after a niche, a vertical, or were they looking at this is something that could be applied broadly? So I think investors are as different as startups. Because this is such a massive market, massive problem to solve, and probably not done by like building something small for two years and figuring out, getting some market fit, selling a few products, and that's it. We want to build something, as I said, that's there for the next 10, 20, 50 years. For that, you need an investor who's committed completely convinced that this is a problem, has critically thought about this problem before. It's not somebody who opportunistically jumps on an opportunity left or right. Somebody who actually wants to go as badly as we want to go after that opportunity. So I guess just by knowing that I want this kind of investor, the investors I talked to were actually open to the discussion because uh, what, I, what I did was make a long list, get some feedback from a few founders who've been there, and done that uh, process before and got the feedback on who would fit this kind of profile. And, but even if you do that, you get different answers. So there were some answers which are basically by the book answers. And again, I read books on this before and everybody says make a use case. If we were disqualified because somebody said, I want to see a use case and I've seen this pattern many times because a lot of people read the same books. So everybody is asking the same question. And so, when we looked for, for those kinds of investors that really are convinced and talked to them, we, we basically went in with a hypothesis that we've got for the market and with actually an actual product that I could demo that I had actually built in my free time the months before, showed to a customer, worked with them on it. So we showed them, first of all, how massive this market is and how massive this problem is and that we have a hypothesis that this is really unsolved. This clicks with a few people because they have this hypothesis before and some didn't see that problem and that's okay. We showed them also that we've got a solution for that problem and the customer is actually liking that solutions and others who are interested. So that part is very helpful because you're not only going in with a slide deck, which by the way, we actually didn't go in with a slide deck. You just, uh, you just go in with a product and you show what you can do. And if somebody has thought about the problem and has looked for different solutions. Um, professional investors put a lot of time in not only meeting startups, but researching the market beforehand. Then it's almost like you've waited for years for this, this match to happen, us as well as them. And then you have a discussion where you say the problem fits, the solution fits. So the only remaining question is, can we work together with a team that we've got on both sides? This is not an exam, right? I, I often see that many people take this as an exam. Like, what should I pitch in my seed deck? What should I pitch in my series A? Yes, read the book, please. 
prepare a proper deck, think about your story, have your points ready, have your data in, your, in the back of your head. But it's not an exam. This is not a university anymore. So what helps is coming in, I think, from both sides with a perspective. That's what we were looking for. Now, again, if you're building shampoo, then you should find somebody who um, finances shampoo. And maybe that's a different, uh, that's a different model. But for us, mm. it was really conviction on the problem and the solution and then on our relationship of working together. And I still get use case questions and I had argue, uh, good arguments of why you should go after use case. And we said, we don't want to do that. And then you can agree to disagree and that's okay. Uh, it's not a game of finding a hundred investors. You need one uh, or two that want to work with you. Interesting. And did both Crane and Blue Yard Capital, were they similar in terms of what they saw and why they wanted to invest in Next Matter? Very similar in terms of what they saw and why they want to invest. And very distinctive as an almost partnership in what they bring to the table. So hmm. on the one hand side, really deep understanding of product, market, building companies, large high technology bets with Blue Yard um, is placing very interesting, by the way, as a side note to look at their portfolio, but there's really where I would say the least inspiring company in the portfolio, there's stem cell technology, nuclear fusion technology, some of the big blockchain crypto bets before the market got yeah. hot. So really inspiring investor to work with who also saw in this specific problem space, a solution to be done. I think they had looked at this for months before we even met and we found a good fit. So that's the one side. And then for execution, you also need to look at if you build a product and you build um, on the right hypothesis, how do you get this to market? And this is why Crane is on board. Um, again, similarly convinced on problem and solution, personally working very closely together. And uh, with their team, they are um, real go-to-market experts. Very small team in London, but I mm. think every, every portfolio company of them is basically benefiting from that knowledge, from uh, go-to-market expertise in B2B SaaS in Europe with a step into the US. Those conversations basically are right now the conversations we're having with them on a weekly, bi-weekly basis to build the company. So both of them saw the problem, saw the solution, and we saw in both of them very strong experts and partners to build um, from this solution and initial prototype a proper company. Great. So you've got your seed funding and now you're going to eventually raise a series A at some point. So talk to me about where you are in terms of go to market. What have you figured out and what are you still figuring out? And then my third part of the question is, what do you need to have nailed before you can raise a series A funding? First of all, it's nothing I'm really worrying about in my day-to-day -day because we're just building the product and working with customers as we need. So investment is not something I'm, I'm worrying about right now. But in the end, when there's the point to raise, for me, the conversation is again, not an exam conversation. This is not a check the box. Obviously, like we can have a whole discussion on what Series A investors are looking for. My answer is the same. Everybody wants to see traction. Everybody wants to see a working product, customer feedback. But there are discussions about huge traction models, all kinds of analytics around it. And there are discussions about having the right kind of traction, right kind of product, right kind of team. In some way in between, you meet mm. people. So we we're talking to a lot of people today, have been talking for the last mm -hmm. few months and last year already. And we'd like to keep those conversations. We think that the match is made when we've conviction on both sides. And when we've conviction that we've 
worked with the right number of customers. So we're adding a few customers that we've got a strong hypothesis on how to grow this business, which we have a few hypotheses, but nailing it down one or two that really work is helpful. And then this will be the point when we start into those conversations. But right now, this is not a real concern right now. Okay, great. So the other thing that a lot of entrepreneurs have to deal with very early on, and it's so critical to making your company successful, is hiring the right people. I'd love to hear from you on your process and experience hiring your first 10 people and any advice that you have having gone through the process now. So the process we've gone through is really zero to 10 right now. That's where we are, which by the way, um, it took us, you might not believe it, two years and very much on purpose. The first point to this is, I think it's really hard. And people tell you before it's very hard. It's going to be harder than you think it is. And the part that's that's not hard is hiring someone who has a similar background as you and a role that is similar to what you did before. Uh, but what is very hard is hiring for all the professions out there that you need in a cross-functional team in a startup to, to make this successful. What I found really helpful in my setting was do the work yourself. First, figure out what needs to be done. Try to go, do a good or at least acceptable job at it which leads you to finding the questions you need to ask to hire somebody to do it much better. Oh, interesting. So that one for me was a key and is still a key. Right now, I'm very much involved in sales. We don't have any official salesperson on the team. Um, we're spreading ourselves selling right now just uh, quite thin to just get the new customers on board. But I refuse to hire somebody and I told the team as well, I refuse to hire someone before we have not figured out who we need to hire because they're very different profiles in sales. You don't just get a salesperson. The same um, is true for design. It's the same for engineering. It's the same for product. So that is probably the first one. Do the job yourself. And if you're not doing the job anymore yourself, figure out who can do the job themselves. Whoever hires a person needs to know what that person needs to do. And then write it down. <laughs> Think about what you are optimizing for, similar to if you try to reach a goal in a quarter or in a year or over the span of a company's life, write the goal down. It's something that, especially in the early days, is easy to forget. I've forgotten this many times. And sometimes you just don't have the time mm. to write it down. But it's, it's one of those points. Hiring is one of those points where it's critically relevant, at least for yourself. Have you made the note on what you need? And then you can check against that. And then when you talk to people, you ask the questions repetitively. Every person is different, so you'll, you'll have to adjust your script a bit. But if you ask um, the same questions a few times, you'll learn. Until I hired the first engineer, this took, I think, a few hundred outreaches. I did like very personal outreach on a platform. I didn't want to do the LinkedIn outreach because then it's very hard to find people. If you are on a platform where there's people that are looking for a job, write to them see what they react to. It's a sales process. If you get interviews, mm. I had, I don't know, 50 interviews before I had the first person and they were all nice conversations. I learned probably so much more than every candidate in this process about the role itself, what is needed, what is not needed. And you won't know it before, but with the interviews you learn. And then afterwards, it's much easier. If you hired the first person, that person can help you and you can figure out the next interviews. So Okay. Yeah. So do the role yourself, prepare your questions and the process is not over. When you fired the person, try to make them successful, which is especially true now as we're growing beyond just a team that can sit around the table. But that's a whole different discussion on how do you onboard right. someone and make them successful. 
And what, what should the first 10 hires be? The answer is, as always, depends. In my case, I looked at, for a B2B software as a service company in this specific field, yeah. what am I missing yeah. right now to build first the product and to convince customers? That's like, what are you doing? Product market fit, go to market fit. So who do you need to get? For us, the first few roles engineering, design. If I would do it again, product actually. The assumption was I can do a lot of product, but if you have a proper professional product person, even with a bit of a product marketing background, very, very helpful. In my case, the customer go to market side. I actually started building the product itself for a few months. So on the engineering side, I could cover it as well. On the product side, you can somehow cover it as well. On the design side, well, I don't want to show you my designs. They work, but um, <laughs> you can design, but everybody's a designer in some way, but uh, some, some are more equal than others. Right. So th right. those three roles were for me the key. And if you are one of the other of these roles, figure out who will be the right person on the customer success and uh, growth side. But I think with this, for people, we had a very small team to start with for the first few months. You get a lot of things done and you can answer all the questions you need in a much better way than you can do yourself. Hmm. So product, engineering, design, and... Customer growth and success. We put it actually together. Not okay. a salesperson, not a success person, not a marketing person. Somebody who basically the role description is talk to customers new and existing, figure out what they need and help them get it. Got it. Okay. Well, I think that's... Uh very tactical and good advice for, for people listening. Okay, excellent. So we're almost at the end of our podcast time. I wanted to ask you some questions that's outside the realm of your work. So my first question is, tell me about your favorite book, fiction, nonfiction, and why? So I've got a few fiction books that come to mind that have somehow created thoughts and I love to read them. But if I define favorite by what was really helpful, really relevant for me. I think a very classic that um, a lot of founders, if they, uh, they've not been reading it, should read hard things about hard things. And this is not a book. It's one of the books that is completely against the norm. It's one of the books that I pull out the, the most of the times every few weeks. So that's very helpful on the nonfiction side. And I think Ben Horowitz has done such an outstanding job, not only by the numbers, but also by defining almost a one book genre that uh, works just very, very, very well. I would love to see a few more of those. So that for me is by, if you look at the data, that is the most relevant. And then on the fiction side, I really like anything that is future gazing. People thinking mm. about what could life look like in 50, 100, 150 years. And with this, I'm not talking about all kinds of science fiction that we'd love to see in movies and that you can read books about. But really, what does it mean for nature if we're growing uh, as a population like we're growing today? So um, a German book, The Swarm, uh, is, is the one that impressed me most lately. It's basically mm. about the uprising of the seals. They come to shore, they start to fight back against humanity. And they find some, like this tension builds up. So it's really about this fight about survival on both sides. And it's where tension shifts from people being able to drive that to nature, fighting back in some way. So Interesting. Which, What's it called again? The Swarm, Frank Schätzing. So, I think it's, it should have been Der Schwarm in German, but it should have been translated okay. by now. Yeah. Okay. I'll definitely look it up, but sounds very fascinating. And then my other question is, Europe. What's your favorite city in Europe and why? 
Very clearly Lisbon. That's a simple answer. I've been going really? uh, almost every year the last few years. Right now, it's a bit limited with travel uh, restrictions, but Lisbon is my clear, clear favorite. And I like when I travel, I like to travel to different destinations. I like city travel, outside city travel. I think Lisbon combines this in a very, very beautiful way. When you arrive in the city, it's very energetic. One of the reasons I live in Berlin, I like the kind of energy, all the different sites you see in restaurants, music scene going on, culture, the arts, bars, and even work, right? You see really a lot of yeah. great uh, companies coming out of there, uh, great ideas um, being built and being realized. I think Lisbon is very much that, a few years behind. Uh, so I've been going for the last few years and you see literally every time you uh, get to Lisbon, you see the city developing from time to time. So what, the, having having awesome flights of seat, having a good evening on Santa Catarina, overlook over the just with a beer, having some time to go to the coast for a few days. There's so many options. It's really uh, a nice city to spend time in. I've actually even spent time while building the company to work from there for a week or two, uh, just because it's a very inspirational place. And it's sunny in the end, uh, which I think regardless where you are in, in the north of Europe, London or Berlin, you don't have that every day. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. That sounds wonderful. It almost makes me want to go to Lisbon now that the half term is coming. And thank you for your conversation today. I look forward to seeing what Next Matter achieves in the next few years and, and tracking you guys. Thank you for being, being on the show. Anita, thanks for the invitation. Thank you for the conversation and um, looking forward to follow the next ones. 